We continue the Shear in Navi. David Melech had requested by his generals that he no longer go to battle because his life was too precious and there were enough soldiers to fight on his behalf. Also, in addition to the regular army of soldiers, there, were, there was a special class of Giborim. Giborim means very powerful, courageous fighters who were unusual in his talent. This is a special talent. A person possesses both courage and ability, his talent to do battle. King David had a number of specially talented fighters. Now there were three who were known as the Great Three, the three top Giborim in his army. Above all was one known as Adino Paetzni. He was so great that with one blow, he could kill 800 soldiers of the enemy. There's a debate in Gemara as to who he really was. Some say that he was one of King David's generals, top fighter that he possessed. Others say that this was King David himself. David himself had the special gifted powers from heaven, the blessing from heaven, that in battle he could kill 800 soldiers with one blow, and about which the Gemara is that King David was very sad as to why he could not reach the number 1,000. Of course, to go still deeper, the question is brought, what is this great pride in destroying people, killing? Is there such great pride to be able to wipe out so many lives at one time? After all, these are soldiers, true that they are on the side of evil. They are attacking the Jews. They are attacking those who are holy, children of Hashem. It is a command by Hashem that they go out to battle to wipe them out. But being proud of doing it, we find even Hashem too is not happy with such a matter. The answer is that, in truth, Zayn Kodesh says, that Rizal says, that Nusazal goes into detail on this, that in every evil being, there is a spark of good. And this drop of good, this heaviness in each being, is imprisoned in that being. To release that spark itself requires a very great sonic. This was the power of King David. They could take 800 of these Tomei individuals to strike them down, to smite them down, simultaneously withdrawing from them all the Nitsutsas, the sparks of Kedusha, of holiness that were in them. This was his purpose of going out to battle, to withdraw the holy items, units that were imprisoned in these Tomei confines. Again, this first one, Adino Ha'etzli was listed as the most powerful fighter in King David's army, according to one opinion. Second to him was one called Elazar ben Dodo, who was so great that he would do battle and he would strike with lightning speed. He would stand and fight until his head became so tired out he could no longer lift it. That's how strong he was that he would not stop. Every time he raised his hand with speed, he would strike down another person, another enemy soldier. Third was one called Shamor. This Shamor, too, was so great a fighter, a battler, that when the Jews went into battle against the Philistines, and they found themselves in trouble, when they fled this battle, the entire Jewish army would flee a battle. Shamor would stand alone and fight against the Philistines single-handedly, and would win the battle. These were the three top fighters, 
top giborim of King David's army. Afterwards, there were three others, great battlers, also giborim. Second to these three, top one was Avishai, commander-in-chief, that was the brother of Yoav. Note that Yoav is not mentioned here. Yoav, the commander-in-chief of King David's army, uh, about Yoav it is written that all these feats, these accomplishments, these giborim were as nothing compared to Yoav's courageousness and physical prowess. This was what King David's army consisted of. Of course, it is understood that physical power means nothing. The eyes of Hashem, physical strength is nothing. It is Hashem who decides and determines the outcome of any war. So if the Jews were obedient to the command of Hashem, they had the true religious spirit, Hashem was with them, they could win the war without these great heroes. It's just that Hashem showed them, he sent them such leaders as a symbol of the assistance of Hashem. There's one more of the great fighters mentioned with King David. In this one, the Gemara goes into much more detail explaining. His name was Benayahu ben Yahiyadah. Benayahu, the Pesach says about him that he struck down the two Ariel. Ariel means the two kings of Moab. He struck them down. That's the simple translation. The Gemara says also means that he was so great in the study of Torah that Ariel stands for the lions which symbolize the base of Mikdash, the holy temple. There was nobody who could match his knowledge in Torah, both of the holy temples, both Besamekdash, first and second. The passage is about him that he struck a lion in a ditch, which stayed when it was snowing, a freezing cold day. He struck this lion down <coughs> because it is known that a lion is much stronger in the winter than he is in the summertime. So in the snow, Benayahu killed this lion. What is the reason for mentioning this physical accomplishment. He always says this means that he, he himself was so strong, so filled with a unmatched fighting spirit for the sake of Hashem's commands to battle against the Yitzhahara that when he came to the mitzvah of mikveh, mikveh is one of the outstanding mitzvahs that we have, not just for women but for men too, for men to purify themselves in mikveh on an ice-cold day, where the waters were frozen, Benayahu broke the ice, he struck the lion in the pit on the day of snow and ice, which means that he had the courage of a lion to break the ice. It was a freezing day, and the dip in the mikveh in this icy waters. This is what Benayahu accomplished, and it is very important to note that what Benayahu did served as an example for later generations. Because this is not a feat that was done then, thousands of years ago only. Later generations to the present day, in fact, there are many great tzaddikim, many high-spirited Jews who did and do the same. In Oman it was known that Benazel himself, of course, was Talmidim, would go out in the winter, break the ice, and dip. The many today came from Oman, Today in Eretz Yisrael, who had done that. Rakach of Lezal himself was accustomed to doing that regularly, breaking the ice and going to the mikveh in the icy waters. Erizal says, to go one step still further, just to touch on it, we won't go too deeply. We say the snow, the day of snow, the word shalek, snow, it is known, 
that in the old days, the great Sadiqim used to accept self-inflicted torture upon themselves to forgive for their sins. But we cannot take this to account for ourselves now. We are not fit to do such things. It is enough that we obey mitzvahs without accepting tortures, without taking upon ourselves suffering. As the Gemara says, ordinary people are on a level where just do what I show words of you. Don't add any additional restrictions. Don't take upon yourselves a desirous where you deprive yourself of drinking wine or other pleasures. Do what is permissible, and refrain from that which is forbidden, and you'll be serving Hashem properly. But in those days there were people who did, those days of course being to the past, recent past, tzaddikim who would bathe in snow, in ice, as a means of suffering to erase their sins. These tzaddikim were so great they didn't have sins that deserved this type of suffering. But as the Gemara says, the leading tzaddikim would take upon themselves a suffering that was so great to cover, to forgive the sins of the rest of the Jews. This is what's meant by a true devotion, a true leader of Jews. It's the tzaddik emes, is one who leads the Jews with such devotion that he's willing to suffer for their sake. Just as Mashiach himself, the Gemara says, is suffering for so many generations now to forgive for the sins of the Jews, so that the Jews should be worthy of his coming. Now this shelik contains the words shegal, which means a sin that is fit for a dog. A very low type of sin, and that is a kelev. In fact, the word for kelev, targum, is shegal. So that Enoyahu took upon himself this tikkun, either tikkun abris, by going into this shelek, tikkun for chil abris, which stands for kelev for dog. That is why Enoyahu is a lot of bed yud kevav. Bed, which stands for both, bed is. The bed also is Sheb Bon, which is the letter after Yud K Vav. Bed is the letter K, after Yud K Vav, the final letter. This letter K is the Sheb Bon, which is Bigimatria Kelev, which stands for the Sheb Bon. All this is included in Pereyahu, about which Denizal says that we find that he was a tickled. For many others of the past. Rizal says, though, it is better not to reveal his Gilgulim, so he will abide by Rizal's wishes there. Suffice it to say that Bariyab Yada was so great, so holy, that as the Gemara says, there were very few to ever match his greatness in either base of English. Now, the Navi Torah tells us an example of the powers of King David's followers. One day, during a time of battle, King David did not take part in this battle as he had been requested to, but he suddenly said, I have an urge. I would like to drink the special waters that are found in a well in the land of the Philistines. He had tasted those waters once. He recalled that the water, how clear and sparkling this water was, and he said, I wish I could have some of that water. He just mentioned this wish. Three of his giborim, Avishai, the brother of Yod, and the other two, this was the second one, Gibor, not the first three, which these three took their swords and slashed a path through the enemy lines, three alone, faced the entire enemy lines, cut a path through, went to this well, took the water from there, and had a battle their way back, 
You brought the water to King David and said, Here, we brought you the water you wish to drink. King David was so emotionally touched by this act of their part that he said, The waters which were brought at the risk of your lives, I could never allow myself to drink. I consider these waters holy. Therefore, I shall pour this water out before Hashem. I offer this water to Hashem. I will not drink it. This is a simple translation. The Gemara says that there's a deeper interpretation of this story. Interpretation, we say that King David desired to drink water. We always use the word water as a symbol of Tana, which means he desired to find out a special halacha, a din, a Hebrew law. But how, does he find, how can he find it out? The Sanhedrin, who were in session, but it was difficult to get to them, he wanted to have three Gibarim at the time, to battle their way through this, these battle lines, reached the Sanhedrin and asked them this question. The question was, the item which is discussed in Gibar, the question was, which means that if someone damages the property of a private property owner, for example, as a storage, a warehouse filled with wheat, if he sets fire to that wheat, of course, he must pay for the value of the wheat. But what if, what if in that wheat there are hidden special utensils? Expensive small items hidden in, the, in those bushels of wheat. Is he responsible to pay for that which is hidden? This question he sent to the Sanhedrin to resolve. And these three Gibara went there, brought back the answer. The answer was, that wasn't the question yet. The main part of the question was, not whether he has to pay for it, but whether if it is done in a time of war. In other words, his army is advancing. In order to advance, to get to the enemy, or to protect themselves, they must set fire to the property of a Jew. But this property has hidden in it these expensive items. Now, can he do this, set fire to the property, and must he pay for these items that were hidden there? The answer was, they said, of course, it is a question of whether he must pay for what's hidden inside. However, since you are a king, you have a right, a legal right, to go through anywheres, break into anyone's property, use that property for your purposes, and you are exempt from any type of payment. King David accepted his statement, but said that since these three were compelled to risk their lives to go through enemy lines to get this answer, he would not quote they did in their name. Though it is a mitzvah to always quote the source, the origin of a halacha of a din, in this case he omitted their names because of the fact that they risked their lives to get it, which was not, it was not worth it. It was not worth risking their lives to get the answer to this question. In addition, the Yerushalmi says that the problem here was he asked for water, not to drink himself. The water was because this was Sukkot time. In Sukkot we have the Nisuch HaMayim, pouring water on the Mizbeach, and that is why he said, the waters you brought, I will pour out before Hashem. Before Hashem means, on the Mizbeach. This is an example of the prowess, the courage of the fighters in King David's army. These are the ones who led 
the chosen battle for him. At all times, they were extremely successful. We come to a special incident that took place. This, in fact, is the final incident of this Sefer of Nabi, Shmuel Pais. Torah tells us that towards the end of King David's life, Hashem became angered at the Jews. In other words, the time had come for the Jews to pay for a certain sin. Sin was that during the life of King David, when they should have been loyal to King David throughout, to David Abelach throughout, loyal to him as a king, loyal to him as a tzaddik, loyal to him as a rebbe, as a leader, spiritually and physically, instead they turned away from him so many times following those who rebelled against him, so there was a decision in heaven to bring a plague, to bring a suffering, a harsh decree upon the Jews. How to get that done legally? So, we find, for example, while Shemar Kodesh says, the last Pasuk, last Pasuk, the Mizmo we say for Shabbos, as words we say that Hashem is just and does nothing wrong. That the law of Lassabo, there is no wrong done by Hashem. Hashem is righteous and there is no wrong done by Hashem. So the Hashem HaKadosh gave as a mushal case where a Havdil, an earthly king, who has a criminal brought before him. A criminal has committed a crime that deserves a death penalty. And the king is justified in sentencing this criminal to death. There's no question about it that he is doing something which is Yosher, which is righteous. At the same time, there is a wrong resulting from this. Because, though it may be true that this criminal has committed a crime for which he deserves to die, his wife committed no sin or crime which should make her into a hereditary widow. Or his children are innocent. Why should they suffer as orphans? Or his partners in business. Why should they suffer the loss that his death would incur? So the king is doing what is right in killing him, but he cannot help himself having others suffer as a result. When Hashem punishes a person, if there are any side effects, it is only because those who are being affected deserve that type of punishment exactly. Hashem will not kill a person until the time has come for his wife to deserve becoming a widow, for his children to become orphans, and for everyone else who will suffer thereby to be party of this suffering. So here too, Hashem brought this about through an act of David HaMelech himself. The Satan, it's a horror, Malach HaMavis, the same angel, got into King David and talked him into committing an act that was legally forbidden. One of the mitzvahs of the Torah is that you are not allowed to count Jews. It is forbidden to count them. That's why when it comes to a minion, we cannot count to see if there are ten we use a special formula by saying a certain Pasuk or the Beis HaMikdash, they had to raise a finger, they had to remove a Yerukia to begin with. There were special means in which the Jews were counted, but you cannot count them directly. Here, suddenly, King David was filled with a desire to find out the population of the Jews and take a census. And so he summoned Yerav and said to him, I want you to go out and count the Jews. Yerav was shocked. He said, what's the difference? 
as many as there are, may they multiply. King David insisted, told them to go out and kill up the Jews. I must have the, the number. It's as though the spirit entered into him and forced his actions. And then, when this was done, King David suddenly felt a pang of conscience, a pang of deep regret and remorse. And then suddenly, the prophet God came to King David and said, I have a message for you from Hashem. The message is that you have counted the Jews. The Jews may not be counted because if they are counted, then harm will befall them. But since they've been counted, something tragic must take place. But you will be the one to decide what that tragedy will be. You have a choice of three items. Hashem gives you this choice. Either the Jews shall suffer seven years of famine, or they will suffer three months of constant, steady defeat at the hands of their enemies, or three days of a deadly plague from heaven. You must choose one of these three. King David thought about this, and then he decided, the order says that what prompted his decision was, First, he thought if I would select seven years of hunger, then they would suspect me, the Jews would suspect me of picking something where I would not be affected by it. They'd say, I'm wealthy, I have enough food to live on. So I'm excluding myself from this punishment. If I would select three months of battle, war, defeat at the hands of the enemies, again, they suspect me of being able to sit back at home to be safe from the enemy. Therefore, if I select a plague, I am as much at the mercy of the angel of death as anyone else, because he does not discern between wealthy, poor, high society, or the lowest type of peasant. If the angel of death strikes, he strikes at will. So, he said, for the reason, for the sake of the people's minds, to set them at ease, I will select the plague. However, he said to the prophet God, He said to the prophet God, if we have to fall into one's hands, let us better fall into the hands of Hashem, rather than the hands of our enemies. Because Hashem is filled with pity, with compassion, with kindness, with consideration. We'd rather be at the mercy of Hashem for three days, they're the mercy of our enemies. The enemy is given the green light, the go-ahead signal. He can be so sadistic, so vicious, as to have no pity on the Jews and perhaps wipe them out. Whereas we find, in the case of Hashem, Kaviyachol, the Gemara tells us an interesting point. Hashem is all-powerful. Hashem has his instruments of death, instruments of destruction. These are called the arrows of destruction. And Hashem says in the chapter where he speaks about a warning, a threat to Jews. If you will disobey me, if you will reject my mitzvahs, Hashem says, then I will send after you, I will strike you with my arrows. And all the arrows I have, I will spare none of them. I will shoot every last arrow I have into you. Imagine the arrows that Hashem has, these are heavenly forces with which he will strike at the Jews. But this is so awesome and so frightening that it appears as though there is no 
chance for survival. Hashem will send even one arrow to destroy a nation, to destroy a world, to destroy a universe. Here Hashem says, I'm going to use every single one of my arrows to the very last one. Chitzai achalabot, the Pasuk says. Every one of my arrows I will shoot till I finish every last arrow which will strike into the Jews. Yomorah says it's a very kind statement by Hashem. Because chitzai kolom, this means. I'll use up all my arrows. Why? You don't shoot arrows at nothing. You've got to shoot at something. Which means, the Yomorah says that the Jews will outlast all the arrows of Hashem. The arrows will come to an end, but the Jews will not. They will outlast the top degree of punishment sent by Hashem. This is a haftocha, an assurance by Hashem, that my people will never be wiped out. My arrows could consist of a united effort by United Nations to attack a small band, a small group, a small nation, a tiny country of Israel. We could have the concerted effort of all these evil nations, all set one goal to obliterate erase the last vestige of this tiny country. But they will not succeed because throughout history all the empires, the greatest world empires, have tried that and they themselves have gone down to defeat. There is no trace left of them of these same arrows that Hashem sent because it is impossible to erase the Jews as a nation, the Jews as a people. Just as Hashem is infinite, eternal, everlasting, so too are the Jews. With this premise by Hashem, therefore, no one at all said, let us fall into the hands of Hashem, because Hashem, even when he punishes, is so kind and so considerate that surely he will see to it that less of the Jews will suffer in the three days of plague than by the hands of the enemies for three months. So Torah says that this plague began. And the plague began with the other cities in Eretz Israel. It went very quickly. The angel of death cut a swath, constant flow of blood of the Jews. It reached a total of 70,000 dead. First day. And they could see the path the angel of death took. As they could see, well, each Jew fell dead in that order. He had reached the gates of Jerusalem. At that point, King David broke out with a bitter cry. He cried to Hashem and said, Why should these innocent lambs suffer? It is my fault. I am the one that is guilty. I should be the one to suffer. Why should so many Jews pay with their lives for me? This was the cry of King David, the Tzvilah, a life that was filled with so much suffering. Note the life of King David. He was constantly being harassed, pursued, by enemies, he never had a moment of respite, a moment of real true peace, a life of constant bitterness. But yet this life was what made us rich, because due to his trials, due to his sufferings, he composed the Sefer Tehillim. Sefer Tehillim is 150 chapters where he pours out his heart to these words with such deep emotion such deep kavodah, so much feeling. Any time a person, any Jew is ever in any kind of trouble or suffering, he need only take the Sefer Tehillim and read these chapters of Tehillim. And he can find himself, his own experience, in these chapters of Tehillim. Every type of suffering, every type of anguish or agony that a person can experience is found in the words of David HaMelech in Tehillim. 
any type of his business that a person needs, he can use a safer telephone. The fact that it's so all-encompassing, that the most important ten chapters that exist are from the safer telephone. It encompasses all the ten types of Megina. As Rabbeinu says, the ten chapters of Tehillim, the ten forms of Megina, which can cure the ten poisonous arrows that were shot into the princess or the cause of the goddess of the Shekhinah. This is the Sefer that King David composed, Sefer Tehillim. And how did he compose this Sefer Tehillim? Whenever he was in trouble, when he had King Shaul pursuing him, when he had Afshalom seeking his life, he had the other enemies who were out to kill him. When he had his battles with the Philistines, the rest of the Goyim, he would always turn to Hashem, pour out his heart and tefillah to Hashem, and he would compose these words then. Together, of course, the Gemara says with nine other great tzaddikim. Some of the chapters deal with the the other tzaddikim too. Basically, it is by King David, and this Sefer Tullum we now have, is a chus of Sefer Tullum, which is the key to Tshuva. Interesting to note how close Tshuva is related with Tehillim. Today now shows that the first Pasuk in Shemais, Ela Shemais B'nei Yisrael Avoy Mitzrayimu, Es Yaakov Ish Uveisai Bo. That's the first Pasuk. And the Sefer Tebis, the last letters of those words, constitute the two words Tshuva and Tehillim. Show the relation between the two, which also makes up the Bnei Yisrael, the wholesomeness, the purity of the Jews. It depended upon Tshuva through the saying of Tilm. So, in this case, Dabalach cried to Hashem to salvage the lives of the rest of the Jews, save them from this plague. And again, Hashem sent the prophet Levi God to King David and told him that he should offer a special korban. A sacrifice in the yard of Aravda Hayavusi. Aravda Hayavusi was the king of the Yavusi who converted. He lived there in Yerushalayim. He lived there in a special place. This yard he possessed was actually the Mokkarim Besamikdash. Mokkamikdash. So he, King David was notified that this is the place to offer a korban because this is the place where in the future Jews will offer korbanos but they'll have the Besamikdash. It would be advisable to buy this spot, to own it, and to start preparations for the bigger base of English. Since King David was told he could not build it, build the base, which at least he could build the foundation for it. So he set about to purchase this area from Arabdo, approached Arabdo, Arabdo said, if you want to offer a korma to Hashem, there's no question about it. The privilege like that, I give you my property free. I want no money for it. King David said, I've learned an important lesson from our forefather, Avraham Avinu. When he approached Ephraim to buy the cave of four couples in Hebron, he paid a high price for it for a very important reason. The Zarah Kodesh says that anything, any mitzvah to which you pay money is worth much more than a mitzvah which comes free. And that's why we find many halachas in that respect. When it comes to getting an aliyah, a yuntah, especially Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, the din says, be sure to bid. We have these, the offers of the aliyahs at a price, be sure to bid as high as you possibly can for these achus, buying an aliyah. The Rizal especially speaks about that, stresses that point, 
about the value of bidding for these aliyahs and how much more valuable an aliyah is any aliyah brought for money than the so-called special aliyahs which come free. Same thing too with every type of mitzvah. The Gemara says in general, something that costs nothing is worth nothing. For example, Asya de Bago de Bago, the Gemara says a doctor who cures for nothing is worth nothing. That's understood. A doctor who cures for something is also worth nothing. General. But where someone gives you something that may be beneficial, and he charges nothing for it, then you should know, be certain that there is very little value attached to it. Especially if it is something spiritual, that you should see to it to show your ahava for the mitzvah by giving of your money for it. As a symbol, Nasazar says, the first Mishnah tradition. We speak always about Yiras Hashim, symbolized by the word Isha. Isha Yiras Hashem, Hitas Hawa. Fear of Hashem, Mitzvahs, symbolized by the Nikva, Isha. That's why the Benazal says if you ever want to learn about true Abuna, true simple faith, you'll find that much more Abuna than you find it in men. Because women have that simple sincerity. Therefore, women are the symbol of Yiras Hashem and Mitzvahs. So too, the Mishnah says in Kedushan, First words, Aisha Niknas Bekesif. A woman can be acquired at a wedding as a wife with money. Allah says this means Isha Yidas Hashem, woman, meaning the mitzvahs. Yidas Hashem can be acquired solidly, perfectly, much more strongly if he pays money for it. Aisha Niknas, Yidas Hashem, mitzvahs should be bought Bekesif, paid money for it, then you have really acquired it. This is what King David did. He bought this place of Aravna. He brought up the sacrifice, and after the end of the first day, the plague ended. The Gemara says it ended because one person passed away who was equal to a large portion of the Jewish people. That was Abishai, the brother of Yoav. After his passing, the plague ceased, and King David brought this carbon, the sacrifice, and upon which later we said that he built the foundation of the Beis HaMikdash. We should be Zacha, the Emes, to see with our eyes the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, the coming of Mashiach, the head of Yameinu, Amen, Amen.